And I want to invite you to the book of Malachi as we go through our series together on leaving a legacy in the Lord and what that looks like for us. And I'm going to let you know as we, as we jump into this series together, we're on week four of week six because Malachi is a book that has six messages in it. So we're taking six weeks to go through each message. Uh, because the, the way that the Lord has shared these messages with the people, uh, his people at this particular time in, in history. And we're drawing the relevance of each message for us today. God's, root, uh, God's word is uh, timeless. And therefore, because it's timeless, it is always timely. There's something that we can glean from it in our relationship with him. And what we find as you study scripture is the same questions they were asking one, a couple thousand years ago or longer the same que- are the same questions we ask today. We are no different than any generation of people really in the, the questions we ask as it relates to God and life and why we're here, where we're going and how we're going to get there. And so this, this series is important to us. And so as a church family, just so you know, uh, the way that we operate, uh, when we study scripture, sometimes we do that expositionally, which means we take a book of the Bible. We go through that, the, the book of the Bible, thought by thought, verse by verse to see what we can glean from it. Other times we study things that are topical, that'll be relevant, maybe more for our, our culture today than it is for, uh, other situations. It just helps our church to get further in where God has called us as, as individuals, but, or we study textually. We look at just passages that relates to life as according to the way that scripture teaches them. But the whole point of it and all of it is for us to be encouraged in our walk with the Lord. And so I want to tell you, regardless of whatever we do on Sunday, however we approach whatever message that we're on, the goal is always the same. And the goal is always for us as his family to draw closer to him and glorifying his name and closer to one another as his body that we can shine brighter for the Lord. That is always the goal. So anytime we ever walk out of our building, if we've not utilized that time to draw closer to the Lord and what he's called us to and encourage the body of believers around us or encourage anyone that walks through our doors, I call that a fail. But if we do that, I call that a win. I, I, I run out like a cheerleader on Sunday, which is every, every Sunday, right? So, um, if you want to see that, just stick around. I'll wait till everyone's gone. And then, no, um, just, that went off the rails. Uh, so Malachi, if, if, if you've been through the last three weeks with us, uh, what you've probably noted as we've gone through Malachi is that this is a, a very heavy book in what God is, is sharing with his people. It, it gets right to the point. It speaks right to their heart. It challenges them in their relationship with God. And it's really revealing uh, where they value God in their lives or even if they, if they value God in their lives. And this book, the book of Malachi, is the last book that God shares before he goes silent for 400 years in the history of Israel. And before the whole earth. And at the end of 400 years, then starts the gospel and the coming of Jesus. And so this is the last message he shares with uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God, uh, before he goes silent. And his desire for them is, is in his calling to them is for them to leave a legacy that not only impacts their generation, but the generations to come and the people around them. And so this book, we are approaching from that same perspective in our own lives. God, how can you use us in, in order to, to not only make an impact in, in our lives and our relationship with you, but, but for those around us and generations to come. You know, when you study the first few chapters of Malachi, one of the things that we have uh, recognized is that each section of a message that they uh, are spoken to from the Lord starts off with a question. God gives a challenge, asks a question, they ask a question in return. And and the questions that you see as as we study this book together, they're more accusative than curious. 
And, and one of the things I, I want to do in making that distinction is when it comes to your understanding of God, your walk with God, curious questions are important. They're paramount to your relationship in the Lord. Do not be afraid to ask them. Ask them often. Ask them continuously. Never stop asking them. In fact, I, I, I do it as often as I can, looking at Scripture, seeing what challenging things I can find, going to other people that I know love God's Word, asking them those questions too, to see, to see how they've worked through it, to, to see how church history has worked through it. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun that we're going to ask. And I think it's, it's, it is helpful for us to see the beauty of who Christ is so that we can walk in, in truthfulness in that relationship. To know him and to enjoy him as he is, not how I perceive him to be or make him up to be. And so the, the uh, questions we ask out of curiosity are, are important to our relationship with God. But questions that we ask out of the accusative can be detrimental to our relationship with God. And what I mean is Israel's asking questions, but they don't really want the answer. It's like, I've compared it to this in the past. You ask the question, why are you so ignorant? Like, you don't care what kind of answer they give. You've already, you've already met it out the sentence, judge. You've called them foolish, right? So you don't want them to respond. Well, let me tell you why I'm so ignorant. You're, You're making an accusation in your statement. And when it comes to the questions that Israel is posing towards God, it carries that attitude. Um, they ask God in the beginning, God, how have you loved us? Which was important. God's setting the foundation of everything that he wants to explain to Israel and the legacy all starts in a healthy relationship with, with him. God, how have you loved us? Or God, how have we despised you? Or God, how have we polluted you? Really believe that? God in chapter 2, verse 17, this last verse of chapter 2, before we dive into Verse three, it says, or chapter three, it says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, (laughs) how have we wearied you? It's like this, dad, 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 dad. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Is this driving baddie, right? And God is saying it in, in this context, your words, they're wearying me. How have we wearied you? And then God gives the answer by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking, where is the good uh, or the God of justice? So you're wearying me by two actions, which he's already pointed out. One, you're calling the bad good, the people that are living in, in contrary to God's nature, in sin, you're calling that good. And then you're asking the question, God, where are you and your justice? God, you're not good. We're good. God, we're sitting on the throne and we're declaring to you that you're the one doing the bad job. I'm in charge. Sometimes you have people ask this question, which can be a good question from a um, curiosity standpoint in order to understand how God works. But a lot of bad things happen. Sometimes people word it like this, if God is so good, then why are things so bad, right? And then the, then the assumption is placed, well, God is either all powerful or, or not good, or he is all good and not all powerful. Because if he was all good then, then, and all powerful, he would take that power to make things good. And that's the assumption that's assumed by the question. Uh, I once heard a a minister recently by the name of, of uh, Vadi Bachman, he, he was talking to someone that asked him this question. And he told 
this young college student in philosophy class? <laughs> You're asking the question wrong. And then the young man wanted to know why, right? We need to start the premise of the question this way. Why does God even let you live? Let's assume for a moment he, he is good and he is holy, like the scriptures say. Holy means no imperfection comes before him. And since he is good, and since he is holy, why does he even allow you to live? We can pretend to be great people in public all day long, but when you get by yourself, you know things that you've done. And you know the way that your heart can lean. And before a perfect holy God, maybe the question shouldn't be started off by asking, um, why does God allow bad to exist? Maybe the question should be, why does he allow you to exist at all? The reason is, is because it's acknowledging something about our nature. I've heard another uh, minister by the name of Mark Driscoll say it like this. Um, in talking about sin, he's acknowledging that we as individuals, the scripture says this in uh, Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned, we're all sinful. And they said this, sin isn't a thing unto itself. Sin is a corruption of a good thing God has made. It is a parasite. And what that means is that sin needs a host. If you think of it in terms like this, uh, rust needs metal. A computer virus needs a computer. Cancer needs a body. Sin needs a host. We are that host. And it makes the question relevant again to ask, <laughs> rather than say, God, why does bad exist? And to simply ask the question, God, why do you allow us to exist at all? Right? Because to get rid of sin would mean it would rid the world of us. Or get rid of us. And what we acknowledge in ourselves if we become the host from where sin exists is that we need healing from sin. We, we need rescued. We need cured. And the way that Peter put it in asking that same question in Second Peter chapter 3. <laughs> Come on. Give me a click. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. I'll just read it to you. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let me say it again. The Lord is not slow. This is 2 Peter 3, 9. He is not slow about his promise. Meaning God is, is the promiser of eternal life, the restoration uh, of the world that's been corrupted by sin. He's not slow in his promise, as some count slowness. But rather, rather than being slow, as some might make the accusation, this is the statement. He, he is patient towards you. 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I've, I've sat with people before that um, when they've come to the question of whether or not God can exist because evil exists in the world, uh, they're, they're, as they go down that train or the, uh, follow that trail, it's, it's led them to believe that then there, there must not be any God. But I, I just want to tell you this this morning that I don't think there's any other worldview that even comes close to giving an answer to why good and evil or bad exist more than Christianity. In fact, when you deny biblical perspective of what God says about it, I think you have more problems and answers to, to find solutions to rather than just denying the biblical Jesus. And what I mean is when, when it comes to just answering that, the question of, of evil and, and then just denying that there must not be a God, uh, that there, there must not be a God because evil exists in the world. Well, I think that leaves you in a, a sort of a conundrum in being able to answer the question of good and evil even to begin with, because in our hearts, when we look at the evil around us, the, the bad that happens around us, when we deny a God, we're also acknowledging a God at the same time, because something within us is recognizing that the evil is not good and something good should triumph over the evil. I mean, who even told us what's good and what's evil to begin with? Where does that even come from? And so, but, but denying God, it puts you in a greater position of having problems to answer the question of evil than to simply follow what the Bible tells us about the Lord. Like, if you came from nothing and you're looking at evil in this world and you're denying that a God exists, who cares about evil? I mean, really, if there's nothing to this world, just live for whatever makes you happy at the moment and just go for it. And who cares what's violated against it? Survival of the fittest. But you won't do that. We won't do that. Why? Because written in the nature of our own lives, we see the injustice of that and know that we're created to live for more than that. And so God is acknowledging it in 2 Peter 3, 9. This is it. It's the rescuing of humanity. It's, it's what our soul needs. It's the ending of rust and the stopping of cancer. It's, it's the sin that becomes uh, a part of us as we host it. It's, it's the eradication of that because of who Christ is. And you got to think, Christianity, just how ridiculous it would be if God did not put an end in his justice to evil. Because the things that God calls us to is to live for more than beyond the pleasure of the circumstance. I mean, listen to these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I mean, this is in the context of even suffering. If Jesus wasn't victorious over all things and wouldn't reconcile all things in his justice, how bad it would be to call Christians to live in the world in suffering. God calls his people into situations where it may not always be perfect. And it may even include suffering. And the reason we can live like that in victory it's because we live for something greater than just this world. In Romans 8, Paul said this in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
God is looking at Malachi, or the people that Malachi is speaking to, I should say. And they're asking, God, how have we wearied you? Well, really, because you're pursuing pleasure apart from me. You're pursuing things that in that pleasure are contrary to me. You're calling the bad things good and then accusing me of being bad when my desire is to be slow towards you, that you would come to repentance and pursue me with your life. By the way, just for clarity, repentance isn't penance. Like I always have to say that when I say those words, repentance isn't penance. Penance is this process of paying this period of suffering or sacrifice so that way you can get back in right standing. The reason repentance isn't penance is because Jesus has already paid your penalty for the purpose of having a relationship with him. And so when we talk about repentance, it's turning from any other kingdom contrary to him and turning to him. And so what he's saying in this verse is that he would call us to that relationship in him. And then I like what God does here. He hits the chill button. The reason I like it is because the first few chapters were pretty heavy slating. And sometimes you go through that enough and it starts to feel a little messy. (laughs) You know, you get that in life, you got so many problems to deal with. You're like, ah, nothing. I choose nothing. It's too much. Well, here in this text, it's like, the Lord knows based on the first couple chapters that it's just time to hit that button. Let's just chill for a moment and reorient our focus to what's significant. And so he says this, you can try this at home with your kids. This, this means like uh, when things are going crazy, it's this introduction to everyone pay attention for a second. He goes, behold, <laughs> like try it when I get home, listen, everybody. I mean, Behold, children, <laughs> behold, I have something important to say. That's what he's saying. Everyone listen right here for a moment. I'm going to hit the reset button just for a second for our minds, just to walk in this thought. And so behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. So what it's saying in this passage is actually promising us a, a few things. He, he tells us to listen and he's, he's coming in the presence of his temple. What, what the word temple equated with in the Jewish mind is, is the presence of God. He's saying, sometimes you've got all these questions, Israel, that you're asking me. And sometimes you just don't need answers to all these questions. What you really need is my presence. God could explain to you every detail and every answer to every question in the world. But one thing that details will not do is give you comfort. We need his presence. Sometimes in life we need his counsel. We need to know the answers. And other times we need his comfort. And the Bible describes him as both. Isaiah 9, 6. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God, 
everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. The presence of God is there to give you counsel and direction as a Father or Prince of Peace to bring the comfort of His presence. The point of the temple for the people of Israel was the presence of God. But ultimately, the presence of God in the temple was merely a foreshadowing of what would ultimately come with the presence of Jesus. And we say this a lot for us as a church family to understand, but just by way of reiteration for our lives, every practice in the Old Testament that Israel was called to was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill. And you see those thoughts peppered in Scripture as, as Jesus expresses his own identity. And Jesus went before the temple and he said in three days, I will destroy this and rebuild it. Talking about himself and his own resurrection, tearing the temple veil and in his, in his death on the cross, symbolizing that the presence of God was no longer there, but would be with his people. That Jesus himself became the temple and he delivered the temple into the hearts of his own. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb was the, the sacrifice that would be taken into the temple for the sins of the people of Israel uh, during the Passover. And yet Jesus has called that Lamb ultimately in Revelation. He's described as that Lamb and the picture of his sacrifice is seen in the book of Revelation. Jesus stands in the temple and he makes these proclamations that are very bold that people wanted to kill him afterwards, but he calls himself the, the light of the world during a celebration in the temple where they would take lights and stick it on the outside of the temple to acknowledge that the temple was the presence of God's light. And yet Jesus stands in the midst of this celebration. And he says to the world that he is the light of the world. During that same set of ceremonies that were taking place, there was also a sacrifice of the pouring of water out at the temple. And Jesus then refers to himself as the living water. The events that took place in the temple, the sacrificial system put in Israel, the prophet, priest, and king that ruled over Israel, all of it, all of it was symbolic of who Jesus was and what he would represent as his presence would come near to us. And so if God's saying in chapter 3, do you really want answers to all the questions? In some cases, I know we do. But it's important to recognize you can have the answers and still be empty. Sometimes in Christianity, I, I think there is no better rationality for anything related to life than the biblical perspective. But when it comes to understanding that as Christians, when you, when you see how logical Christianity is in, in, in any other worldview, that the danger is that, that the pursuit of Christ becomes an intellectual exercise in our lives and not one of relationship. You can have the answers to the questions. We love questions. But you can have those answers and still not practice His presence. And God just pushes that button right here in the midst of the questions that Israel's been asking and said, listen, let's start with my presence. So I said in the beginning, when we walk out of church on Sunday, if, if, if we've not walked out of here drawing closer to the Lord and closer to one another, it's, it's not what we are here for. We're, we're here for that reason. 
don't come to church just to come to church. We come to church because Jesus is worthy and we want to draw near to him and we want to see his, his glory pro- proclaimed throughout this valley. And so drawing near to him becomes the basis for everything. This is, this is what happens in our lives. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, when we begin to answer questions and, and seek the answers to questions, it starts from this perspective, Jesus is Lord and so now what? Rather than I'm Lord and God, this is where you need to fit in. And so he says in, in chapter three, verse one, I'm coming. And then he says, I'm going to bring a messenger who will prepare the way before me. And this is an important statement because this statement is what's going to kick off the New Testament. If you read the gospels, the gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. The first two verses of Mark, it quotes a section of this passage of scripture, that it's the, the coming of, of Jesus and, and that there's going to be one who comes and prepares the way for him. And this one who comes and prepares the way for him is, is mentioned multiple times within scripture. But, but it's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is the, uh, the Halloween costume I've always wanted to wear. <laughs> he's just dressed in fur, he's eating bugs and, and honey. There's so many things I could do with that on Halloween. But he's the one that just declares from the wilderness that Jesus is coming. And the way that this phrase is written is, is significant to understanding who Jesus is exactly. He says that he's going to be the one that prepares the way before the Lord. In Mark chapter one, when, when the, the coming of Jesus is shared in the first couple of verses, it says, uh, he's, he's coming, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That's the type of statement that you give for a king in his kingdom that's approaching to this earth. When someone of, uh, of dignity would travel into a town, they would, they would flatten out the roads. It would literally make the traveling less bumpy so that when the king came in, he would be impressed and have a smooth ride. And what the the message of of John was the preparation of the hearts of the people for the coming of Jesus, that we'd be ready to receive him. He would prepare the way for the one who was to come. And the one who was to come in this last part of this verse, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, is Jesus. And you consider verse 1, in its historical context for us today, and it is significantly powerful in its prophetic statements. So let me just give you a few reasons why. So when it comes to the Old Testament, we have an old, copies of the Old Testament a few hundred years older than Jesus. Prophetic statements about Jesus that are so specific about where he will be born, how he will die, what exactly will be happen, what will happen when he dies, what, what is going to be paid for, for him to be betrayed the type of punishment he will receive, the sacrifice of his own life on a cross before the crucifixion even existed. And in this one verse, in chapter three, verse one, another prophetic statement about Jesus that we have hundreds of years older than Jesus is now saying to us that Jesus is coming to his temple and John the Baptist will proclaim him. And if you go to Israel today, you will recognize There is no temple. There is a wall and there is a mosque where there should be a, or was a temple. There is no temple. In fact, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, which means the fulfillment of this verse would have happened to happen almost 2000 years ago. And in fact, it did. 
In the hindsight for us, we've seen John the Baptist and Jesus coming, but yet it reaffirms to us again the, the significance of, of Scripture and, and how God uses this prophetically to point to the identity of who God is and, and, and help us just worship him, pursue him with all of our lives because this is the, this is the danger within our culture. We, we want to respect everyone and their religious beliefs and what people want to pursue in their lives and the freedom they have to do that. Because we as followers of Christ want that same freedom for ourselves. But this is where we we don't have to agree. You hear the statement, many say all all religions basically teach you the same thing. How to be good. Now, never mind that they're all different gods, all different ways of salvation, all different whatever. They're not aligned in any way. But then they give this, this one statement that as long as you're good, right? All religions are the same. As long as you're good, that's all that really matters. I'm just going to make this thought, not, not to chastise, but to challenge. If you're prone to that statement or ever make that statement, then just promise. It's a statement made out of ignorance. Because when you study the Bible in comparison to any other religious book, in fact, you could culminate them all together and compare it to the Bible. There's nothing that matches it. There's nothing prophetically in any other holy book that even comes close to Scripture, nothing historically, nothing archaeologically. There's no manuscript evidence that validates any other religious book that even holds a candle to the Bible. Almost, almost so that when you start to compare other religious works to Scripture and try to equate them as the same, when you look at the historical validation of them, it almost feels like you're trying to convince someone of a joke becoming a reality. I don't say that to be mean. The only reason I make that, that thought is so that followers of Jesus can can walk with boldness in the truth they stand on. We love people, love people. God calls us to love everyone. Just because we love them, it doesn't validate everything that they do or believe. And when it comes to following after Christ, we've got to be convinced in our own mind that what we pursue after is is accurate. And then when we use the words like faith, that we're not doing it out of blind ignorance, but we recognize that God gave us a mind for the purpose of resting faith on a foundation that secures us. And then when it comes back to the statement of as long as you're good, that's all, that's all that matters. Well, when you compare that to what the Bible says, the the Bible doesn't even say that (laughs) there's no verse for that. In fact, there is this group of individuals in, in, in the Bible that were called the Sadducees that when they looked at the Old Testament laws, they equated no living for eternity by obeying laws. So, so in their minds, there was no doing good that led to eternal living. They, they didn't even equate that. In fact, they didn't believe, they read the Old Testament laws, they believed in following the Old Testament laws, and they didn't even believe in an afterlife. And the reason they didn't believe in an afterlife is because they saw no verse after saying, be good, that attached itself to any promise of living forever. It wasn't even there. And there was a whole religious group that started out of that called the Sadducees. And so when you go to the Bible looking for verses that say, do good and you'll live forever, they don't exist. In in, in fact, 
This is what the Bible says about doing good. By the works of the law, no one, I'm going to bring out the Greek here for no one, means no one, will be justified. Justified is a legal term. It's like you're going to court before God, who is judge, and you're guilty. Sin and a host, right? And God is saying in these verses that now you're justified, not by the law. Not by doing good is that justification ever happening. In Galatians 3.21, for if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up every, every, everything under the control of sin. So when you say, as long as you're good, that's all that matters. Um, if you hold that belief, just know it's not in the Bible. And in fact, it undermines the coming of Jesus altogether. So Malachi is saying, we recognize our condition. We understand just how desperate we are because good doesn't save. Jesus does. But when you take it into the, the thought beyond that, God, God doesn't just want to rescue you. He, he wants to transform you and continue to work in you and grow in that relationship in him. And in fact, when you go to Malachi 3, verse 4, it says this, He will sit as a refiner and purify of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So this is what he's saying, presence of God's coming, that's what re- finds you. This word for refinement is a beautiful word, and I've got to share this quickly because we're running out of time. But we talk about refining a few. I'm like a, if, I don't know why I do this, but if I'm, if I turn them on the TV and there happens to be this, anything about Alaska, I'll watch it. <laughs> so one of the things I watch is Gold Rush. <laughs> and, and some, something I learned in Gold Rush is, um, how they purify the metal and they make the gold bars always at the end. You get to see their season work in gold bars. But when they make gold bars, one of the things I've learned about making gold bars, they'll heat these things up and as they heat them up, the impurities will float to the top. When the impurities float to the top, they'll then skim it off and then you've got the pure gold underneath. And that's the way God's describing our relationship with him. Is that he, he loves you where you are and he loves you too much to leave you like that. That he's created you for a relationship with him, finding purpose and intention in that. And so God refines you in, in him. He refines you in that. And as the impurities float to the top, he skims those off. And here's, here's how a blacksmith who just refines metal, silversmith, I guess, maybe, I don't know what that would be. But as they refine that metal, here's how they know that it's pure. When they look down at the metal and they see their image reflected in it. And that's God's desire for us as his people. In fact, when you read it in the Bible, it tells us that multiple times, Romans 8, 28. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those that love God who are called according to his purpose. And all the bad things in this world that that happen, God's going to turn it for his good. And the way you know that is because he did it at the cross with himself, a demonstration of the most despicable thing used for his glory, the emblem of suffering and shame, but for the hope of the church, the glory that is to come. And then he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. 
says the same thing, 2 Corinthians 3, 8, 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate that the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. God's desire for your life is for you to reflect the glory of Jesus in this world and the way that that happens. It's the experiencing of his presence in your life. Reset button, right? We could deal with every issue that you could think about in this world or, or, Jesus becomes Lord. And you align your life under him seeking his will in the way that you live life in this world. In Malachi Verse 5 then talks about destruction. God's first coming, salvation. God's second coming, destruction. You don't want to be a part of that. You can read it in Revelation 19, verse 13. I call it Pimapants Jesus, where he comes back on a horse, sword flying out of his mouth, his robe dipped in blood, and a tattoo down the side that says, King of kings, Lord of lords. Like, if you've never peed your pants before in a haunted house or something like that, that is the moment to do it, right? That is, that is, that is what's going to happen. First coming, salvation. Second coming, justice. But this is what he says in verse 1 and verse 6. I just want to see how this sandwiches together. The, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. God gave us the covenant in his blood. And verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you children of Jacob are not consumed because the consistency of God's character, the salvation and the hope that we have in him rests secure because his character does not change. You don't save yourself. He does. You don't sustain your salvation. He does. And in verse five, he just reminded us at the end. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Talking about after his coming of salvation, then he comes for judgment. And I will be a a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust uh, aside the sojourners and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Do not fear me basically includes everyone. (laughs) But he's just saying, like, my justice is coming. My justice is coming. I either rescue you or you don't. You belong in salvation or you're not. You can shake your fist at Christ. Or you embrace him. Jesus' first coming, the reason it came, was for us in his patience find our salvation in Jesus because of what he's done. But rest assured, as the accusation was made in Malachi chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, God is good. And therefore his justice will come. But God's long-suffering in these moments is for us in our lives to align ourselves with him. Not just for salvation, but every day of our lives, seeking the will of the Lord that he would direct our paths. Let me close with this verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. God knows our struggles. 
So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter's saying. Adversity has a way of showing us if what we truly believe in is Christ. It's not until life brings pressure and the filth surfaces to the top that you find out if you really walk with Jesus. Because anyone can say they walk with Jesus when life's easy. But it's when it costs you that you find out if Christ is really what your life is about. He's saying for us, even though there's various trials, he's going to take care of that. But what we find in the midst of those trials is that Jesus is truly our hope. So that by it, he uses those opportunities to refine us so that the image of Christ be shaped in us and that we live for his glory in this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information,